All right, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read again from verses 21 to the end of the chapter. But our focus this morning will be 27 to 31, the last half of that section. So Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And we'll stop there. So again, last week we covered 21 through 26, and we talked about that word propitiation that you see there in 25. Uh, It's an important word, and it's an important biblical concept. So I want to maybe just expand on it a little bit here in the beginning. Uh, In English... The word propitiation means appeasement, and we kind of talked about that a little bit last week. Or the act of appeasing a god or a spirit or a divine being in general. Now in Greek, the word there, hilasterion, which is translated propitiation here in Romans 3.25, and we looked at it last week also in Hebrews 9.5, the word was translated as the mercy seat. That was where propitiation was made. That was where the Jews on the Day of Atonement the high priest would go in and would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the people onto the mercy seat to appease God's wrath against their sin. Now note again here what Paul says in Romans 3.25 where he says, Jesus Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. So last week we talked about the concept of Jesus Christ, how he was our substitute, And how he was our satisfaction, how he stood in our place to receive the wrath of God for our sins. And how he then, by his sacrifice, satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. And these are important concepts to understand. If we're going to have a right understanding of the work of Christ. If we're going to have a right understanding of what is the foundation of our salvation. First, note that it is God who puts Jesus forth as a propitiation. This is something God did. He put forth his son. He sent his son to be our sacrifice, to be our substitute for sin. The reason being is because the father, he was the very one whom we have offended, is the one who also provides provides the means of our atonement and of our propitiation. Now, how many here know what happens in Genesis 22? Put you on Bible quiz hotline here. 
Who knows what happens in Genesis 22? No looking, Fred. <laughs> anybody? Anybody? Abraham and his son Isaac. Something happens with Isaac. The sacrifice of Isaac, right. Okay. So in, st- in the story in Genesis 22, that's where God commands Abraham to take his son. Notice, too, where he says, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, what's interesting about that is that Abraham had at least one other son, right? He had Ishmael. But here the idea of Isaac is the child of promise, just like Jesus Christ is the one and only son of God. We're going to look at that this morning when we go through John, uh, the, pr- the last few verses of the prologue. Jesus is the one and only son, the only begotten son of God. Here, Isaac is the one and only son you know, of, of Abraham. So there, there is a parallel going on there. And he says, take your only son, Isaac, and take him up to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. And if you remember, as they're on the way up the mountain, Isaac turns to his father and says, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Because they noticed they had all the other equipment. They had the sticks. They had the, the, the kindling for the fire. They had all the, all the necessary pieces for the sacrifice except the actual sacrifice. So Isaac's like, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, by faith, says, God will provide. Don't worry. And we know that that's exactly what happens. And that, of course, is a picture here that points forward to what we see here in Romans 3.25. God has provided for us. We owe an unpayable debt of sin to God. And by grace, God then pays that by sending his son. Who will pay this debt for us? It is Sure enough, the one and only Son of God, whom John uh, the Baptist will say is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second thing to note here is also, lest we think that the Father sends the Son kicking and screaming, uh, that the Son was somehow unwilling to do this, is that there's some conflict between the Father and the Son. Jesus himself willingly submitted to be our substitute. Now, According to covenant theology, which we believe here in this church, we understand that there are two covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace. The covenant of works was a covenant in which God made with Abraham, or sorry, not Abraham. He made a covenant with Adam in the garden that if Adam would provide personal, perfect and perpetual obedience, he would then receive eternal life. He would then be able to go from a physical existence into a spiritual existence in, in, the, in the glorified state. Of course, we know that Adam failed, right? Adam did not live up to his end of the covenant. He, he broke the terms of the covenant by eating of the forbidden fruit. So the covenant of grace then kicks in where God with the, makes a covenant with the elect, with those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, all those who believe, who place their trust, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in which we get freely eternal life and communion with God for our faith in Christ. This is freely given to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior in his finished work. But there's a third covenant. There's a third covenant that sort of lays the foundation for the covenant of grace, and it is called by Uh, theologians as the covenant of redemption, the covenant of redemption. If you like the fancy Latin term, it's the pactum salutis. 
Uh, unlike the other two, the covenant of redemption is a pre-creation covenant. It is made in eternity past. It is a covenant between the Father and the Son in which the Father basically agrees or promises to give a bride to his son, the church, and the son willingly pays the bride price for the church. That is, he willingly gives himself up for his church to pay the price for their redemption. Now you say, sounds neat. Do you have biblical proof for this? I'm glad you asked. Of course I do. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, again, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather to him, uh, together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. And we'll stop there. So the idea here is that God chose us, the elect, the believers, before the foundation world. He chose us to be in Christ. He chose us to be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. And then later on in verse 7, we see that in him we have redemption. Christ paid the redemption price by his blood or with his blood to buy the church, to buy them back from from, from their bondage and sin, their slavery and sin. So we see this idea here of the, the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption where God chooses us in Christ and then Jesus pays the redemption price in his blood. And then further to, to demonstrate that Jesus did this willingly, uh, Philippians 2.8 speaks about how Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. In Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorite verses that says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So all of these cases show that Jesus willingly went on a divine rescue mission to save a people for himself by dying in their place. So when we say that God has set forth his son as a propitiation by his blood, we're not saying that Jesus, uh, what we're saying, I should say, is that Jesus paid off our sin debt. Okay, there's a, there's a fancy word for that. It's called expiation. It sounds like propitiation because they're related. So expiation is sort of the removal of the debt of sin that we have, the paying off of the debt of sin. And then propitiation is the turning away of God's wrath. Both are there. Okay, you see this in the, again in the Day of Atonement sacrifices when that one time a year they had two goats, right? You had the scapegoat and then you had the sacrificial goat. The scapegoat, would the, the high priest would take his hands, put his hands and lay it on the head of the scapegoat, symbolically transferring all of the sins of the people onto the goat. And then that goat would be sent off. It would be 
sent out of the people, out of the community, out of the, 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 the space where the covenant people were as a sign of the sins being removed from the people. And then the, the, the other goat would be the one that would be slaughtered. And then the blood would then go on the mercy seat to appease the wrath of God. So you see both expiation, the removal of the debt. You see propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. So this idea of what Jesus did, being sent forth by God as a propitiation for our blood, we have another fancy theological phrase that describes this concept. It is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal indicates that a price was demanded for and paid. There was a penalty that was satisfied. And substitutionary speaks that indicates that Christ stood in our place to pay that price. And of course, the, the, the word atonement just means that the wrath of God was satisfied. This is orthodox Christian view of the atonement. This is what we believe the atonement is. And we should accept no substitutes. The problem is, in the history of church, there have been many substitutes put forth for other theories of the atonement. This view, penal substitutionary atonement, has offended modern sensibilities and liberal theologians of the 19th and 20th century, as well as today and even in the past. People will call this view, our orthodox view, as cosmic child abuse. Why would God, why would a father who loves his son send his son to die? That seems cruel. That seems vindictive. That seems arbitrary. What good God would send his son to be beaten and killed? In fact, why couldn't God, if he is good and all loving, why could he just simply forgive our sins without this barbaric uh, sacrifice on a cross? Why does he demand payment? So interestingly enough, there have been several theories of atonement, and I think it is beneficial to kind of Discuss them briefly. There, there are, uh, I think I have five in your handout there. The first is the ransom to Satan theory. This was put forth very early in the church by the church father Origen. And this theory basically states that Jesus Christ paid a ransom price not to appease God's wrath, but he paid a ransom price to Satan. Now, the problem with this view is that you, you know, you, in believing this view, you believe that Satan somehow has a claim on our souls, which he does not. Satan is a creature just like we are. He has no claim on our souls. The debt we owe is not to Satan. We haven't offended Satan. We've offended God, right, with our sin. Our sin offends a holy and just God. The second view is a re- recapitulation theory. This was put forth by the early church father Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, however you want to say that. And in this view, Christ essentially recapitulates Adam's life. Now, in a sense, that's true. We do believe that Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the last Adam, just as Adam was the first Adam. But basically what they say here is that Jesus sort of undoes everything Adam does. So it's like every point in Jesus' life is sort of parallel to every point in Adam's life. The third view is the satisfaction view, which was put forth by the medieval church father, Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. This is similar but not identical to our idea of penal substitutionary atonement. In this view, our sin consists of withholding from God the honor that is due him. 
So we have robbed God of his honor and his glory. And then what Christ does in his sacrifice is somehow restore that honor and glory. His death brings an infinite glory to God, which then earns a reward that that reward then is given to us freely uh, as the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't talk about anything about satisfaction of atonement or wrath or the putting away of sins. Another, uh, er, another theory is the moral influence theory of the atonement by Abelard. This is now still moving in the medieval period. In this theory, there is nothing in the nature of God that calls for the satisfaction of sin. Christ's death should not be regarded as an expiation. His death was a manifestation of the love of God, suffering in and with his sinful creatures. So Christ is put forth as sort of like a moral example for us to follow. Of course, this suffering did not satisfy divine wrath, but revealed divine love so as to soften our hearts to repentance. To, to which I would say, if you wanted to set an example, why did you send your son to, to die? Why did he have to die? That's kind of, now that would be cruel and abusive. It's like, here, Jesus, go and die for these people as a moral example. That doesn't sound, that sounds more like cosmic child abuse to me than the other way. I like to call this the I feel your pain theory of the atonement. So if you're familiar with Bill Clinton's I feel your pain, that's kind of like Jesus is here. It's like, people, I feel your pain. Will you follow in my example? Fifth and final that I have here is the example theory, which is another, it sounds similar to the other one. This came in the, more in the Reformation area from the Sassinians. Uh, in this view, there's no retributive justice in God that demands that sin be punished. God's justice does not prevent God from pardoning sin without satisfaction. And Christ's death saves many, uh, revealing to him the way of faith and obedience is the way of eternal life by giving them an example of true obedience, both in his life and his death, and by inspiring them to lead a similar life. It's very similar to the moral influence theory. Now I could go on, but the point should be clear. There have been many attempts to deny, to redefine, or to explain away our view, which is penal substitutionary atonement. And each one of them denies what, in my mind, is the clear teaching of Scripture that you see right here in Romans 3.25. God set forth his Son as a propitiation by his blood. Christ died for our sins. His death paid our sin debt, and it satisfied God's wrath. So this long-winded introduction serves as a backdrop for the passage we're going to look at here uh, in Romans 3, 27 to 31. But I just felt it was a little necessary to kind of hammer home this idea of the atonement so we have a, a right understanding of it and to see some of the other uh, false ideas that are out there. So last week we saw that God's righteousness was revealed in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. What we're going to see in these remaining verses of chapter 3 is that the righteousness of God is received by faith for Jews and Gentiles. So as Fred so uh, interestingly pointed out in Romans 3.27, we see that there's no boasting. There's no boasting. Where Paul says, where is boasting then? He says, it is excluded. By what law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, if you recall from a few weeks back when we looked at Romans 2, verses 17 through 29, we talked about how the Jew boasted in his Jewishness. 
how they took pride in their, in their national character, their religious identity. They thought that by means of their circumcision and by uh, means of the possession of the law, that they would be shielded from God's wrath, that they were somehow protected by God's wrath just simply by being Jewish. In fact, they thought that their being Jewish would give them favor with God, not just shield them from his wrath, but would somehow earn them some kind of favor, some kind of favored uh, view in, in their, in their uh, eyes. And in fact, you see that word boast in Romans 2.17 and in Romans 2.23, where they boasted in God or they boasted in their possession of the law. Like, we know God and we have his law, so we're protected. Now, after showing us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, that's what we see in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul now is going to draw some implications from this truth. Namely, the first implication is that boasting is excluded. If you say that righteousness is manifested or revealed apart from the law, then that means that you do nothing to earn it. That means there's no room for boasting. When we all get to heaven, there's, none of us are going to be there saying, I got here. I did it. I earned my way. I climbed the mountain. You know, there ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley deep enough. I made my way to heaven. I earned it. Look at me, boasting. <laughs> no one's going to be able to do that. None. Zero. When Paul says, by what law? He's not talking about the word law here as in the Ten Commandments. But he's talking about like a rule or a principle. By what principle is boasting excluded? And it's on a principle of faith. It's not a principle of works. The answer is no. This should be obvious. A principle of works would open us up to boasting again. If, if we could somehow earn righteousness by what we do, we would be able to boast. Like, like Fred said, if, if, you, if you could say, I believed, I mean, at the very least you could say, it was me, I believed in the gospel, I did it. You can just say, I bo-. You, you've got something, a little thing you can grasp on and say, I did this, I, I'm, I can boast. But no, boasting is excluded by faith, on a principle of faith. And that's what we see in Romans 3.28. We see a principle there. This is, this is sort of the principle of faith where he says, therefore, we conclude. We, you know, in other words, we, we are going to settle the matter here. We conclude that a man or a person is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And this is sort of a recap of what Paul said back in Romans 3.24 and 25, which we looked at last week. We talked about justification being forensic, being a public declaration in God's courtroom that we are just, that we are righteous, not by an inherent righteousness, not by something we've earned in ourselves by doing works of the law or by observing the the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. No, we are here declared righteous. Our righteousness, of course, comes by faith. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. Now here, Paul's point in verse 28, the reason boasting is, is, is excluded is because justification is by or through faith. 
It is a justification that is apart from the deeds of the law. Again, you could see that in Romans 3.21. You can't boast if you did nothing to get where you are. We are all going to be brought into heaven because by God's grace, we were given faith. We were given his righteousness. And when we get there, we're going to be thanking God for everything he's done for us. No boasting. Here's an example maybe to illustrate this. So let's say, Jerry, let's say you worked hard all your life. You, and I'm sure you have so far. You've worked very hard all your life. You scratched and, and saved. And, and by much blood, sweat, and tears, you became a billionaire. Okay, and Jerry's like, I'm liking this story already. Okay. Now, let's say, uh, you know, you can say, you know, of course, that you, you worked hard. You worked, you know, as, as the song goes, you worked hard for the money, right? You know, you, you did everything you needed to do. You did, you know, you kept your nose clean. You stayed, you followed all the rules and you, you, you made it. Now, let's say you left your fortune to your children. Now, your children would have no reason to boast, right? They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. They didn't, they didn't submit, you know, years and years and years of blood. Now, of course, I know your children work very hard with you, too. This is just an example. But the idea would be if, if you were a billionaire and you just sort of gave your money to your children as an inheritance, then they did nothing to earn it. And, of course, we've seen this story many, many times, right? Very, very wealthy people who make their own fortunes and then they give it to their children. Usually what happens is the children end up squandering the fortune. Because they, didn't, they don't know what it took to get there. They can't appreciate the hard effort and work it took to get there. Now, it's an analogy, right? Analogies are perfect examples. But the same holds true for us. We didn't earn righteousness. We didn't work for it. We did not toil for it. Jesus toiled for it. He worked for it by giving up his literal blood, sweat, and tears. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We simply receive it as a free gift of grace through faith. And that's the principle. One is justified. One is declared righteous. One is declared innocent by faith apart from works of the law. And then note here in verses 29 and 30, this justification is to both Jew and Gentile. Again, here Paul's comments in 29 and 30 mirror what he said back in verses 22 through 23, where in 22 and 23 he says, there's no distinction. All have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. The Jew has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Gentile has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's sort of now repeated. That theme is repeated here in verses 29 and 30. Is God then the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And Paul says, yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So just as there is no distinction, so too God is the God of both the Jew and the Gentile. There is one God. This is a cardinal truth of the Jewish belief, right? Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of the, their articles of faith in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
But he's not just the God of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles. God created all men. He created Adam and Eve in the garden. And then they are the the, the fountainhead from which all humanity spreads out. In fact, before Abraham, there were no Jews. There were just people. It was just humanity. God is the creator of all men. And thus, since all have sinned, he is also the savior of all men. In other words, there is only one way of salvation for all men, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this exclusive claim, this is something that Christianity has had to deal with for its entire history. The exclusive nature of Christianity and its truth claims is offensive to most people. I mean, most people would say, how can there be only one way to God? How can you say that? You look around the world today, you see a multitude of religious faiths and beliefs and variations thereof. How can you Christians say there's only one way to God? Especially you see this in our sort of truth-resistant culture of today. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. That's a phrase that, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a bit of a rant here. That's just a phrase that annoys me when you say, well, this is my truth. It's like, what does that mean? I mean, you could say this is my opinion. This is what I believe. But if you say this is my truth, it should be your truth too, right? I mean, truth should be truth. It's objective, not subjective. But that's this kind of top tur- you know, upside down world we're living in these days. But if you look at the problem here, sin is the universal problem of mankind. No one is an exempt from sin. It is a virus that has infected all of us at birth. Now you can say, why is there one way to God? The flip side of that is, well, why is God obligated to provide any way? God is not obligated to provide a way. You can't make a claim on God. It is gracious that he provides a way to heaven. Right? That should be cause for joy, that there is a way to heaven. Sin is a universal problem, and faith in Christ is the universal solution. And now the last verse here in this chapter, Romans 3.31. I think Paul closes out here with, I think, is an awesome statement. I think this is just an amazing statement here. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. Again, there's that very strong negative uh, phrase that he uses there. By no means. God forbid. No way. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, he's... Again, Paul, again, we've talked about this before. He's using this this rhetorical device called the diatribe where he is is coming up with what people could, you know, questions that people could think of and he's then responding to those questions. And of course, if you say that justification is by faith, one might think, well, that sort of nullifies the law. That makes the law null and void, right? But that's not what he's saying here. Again, if you said, you know, we just said last week or the two weeks ago uh, that there, the law has no ability to save, right? We mentioned that. So what, what, you know, at the end of verse uh, chapter 20, sorry, chapter 3, verse 20, he says, the law has no ability to save. All it can do is give you the knowledge of sin. The law has no power to make one righteous. The law can only tell us what our sin is. 
It's sort of like if you put, you know, you got a nice, beautiful manicured lawn and you put a sign on there that says, keep off the grass. Now, can the, can the sign make a person keep off the grass? That'd be a heck of a sign if you could have, <laughs> right? You know, maybe if you put an electric fence around and zap people before they come in. But no, if anything, it just lets you know that walking on my grass is something I don't want you to do. Okay? Of course, you can also say, if anything, it probably entices people to walk on the grass. Like, tell me to walk on the grass. I'll walk on the grass if I feel like it, right? Stomp on the grass. Now, our inability to, made, to be made righteous by works of the law does not invalidate the law. It is still God's perfect standard of righteousness. It still informs all of us of God's righteous character and his standards. It just can't save us. The law can't save you. No, faith doesn't nullify the law. In fact, Paul says on the opposite. The very opposite is true. It upholds the law. Now, how does faith establish the law? It does so because our faith points to the one, Jesus Christ, who did fulfill the law. And he did fulfill all of the righteous requirements and demands of the law perfectly. We all know this, but it's helpful to be reminded of this simple yet profound truth. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. He fulfilled the law in thought, in word, and in deed. And because of imputation or application, that perfect obedience is applied to us by faith or through faith. So then when God looks at you now, he doesn't see sinner. He doesn't see failure to keep the law. He doesn't see unrighteous. He sees a person who is obedient, who is perfectly obedient. One who has, in Christ, fulfilled the law. And I think that is an awesome truth. I think that is an amazing truth. We are law keepers through faith. Not because of anything we've done, but because of our faith. So this is the righteousness of God through faith. This is the good news that we've been waiting for for weeks and weeks and weeks. This is the sweet balm of the gospel that heals our sin-stained hearts. Paul has given us a solution to the problem that every man, woman, and child was born with. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. The same answer is, is, is applicable to all of us. Faith in Christ solves our greatest problem. Now here he has given us the doctrine. Uh, having given us the doctrine, Paul now is going to show us how this faith, how this justification by grace through faith has always been part of God's plan from the very beginning. And he's going to do that by holding forth Abraham as the prime example, as exhibit A of a man who is justified by faith. And that's what we're going to look at next week when we look at Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. We're going to see Abraham put forth now as an example, one who fulfills the, the principle that Paul has given us here at the end of chapter 3. But with that, I will uh, end here. All right, well, let's close in prayer and get ready for worship.